Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. James Paulson with us, Jim Paulson of Luthold Whedon Capital Management, as we lay out on a Friday the path to February and, of course, the distractions of a short squeeze. Jim Paulson, I would respectfully suggest you've seen this before. What is different this time with Robinhood versus the other short squeezes you and I have enjoyed? <laughs> well, I... I um I think that a couple things, uh, Tom, hit me. One, one is I think it's another illustration of the impact that technology is having, the, the, the power that technology can deliver uh, to a small cadre of people. We're certainly seeing that in companies like Facebook or Twitter or even people on those platforms uh, and the influence they can have, and now we're seeing it in the financial markets. Um, I, I, think, I think that's sort of interesting. The, the, the social movement aspect is, a, of course, unique. Uh, this is uh, less a uh, short squeeze than it is an angry crowd in some regard. And um, I think, uh, more to the point, it, it, it just it seems like it's a destabilizing force, more so than in, in past short squeezes, where there's just, just seems like you, you can collude with a, with a, with a reddit uh, platform uh, and and act in in unison uh, to target a specific security and move its price wherever you want to with just a little bit of leverage. Um, I think that's a destabilizing force. I think it it's uh, to me sounds a lot like uh, market manipulation and probably needs to be regulated. The last point I'd say about it is, you know, like the other ones, this is going to end badly and uh, probably. Um, uh, eventually, greed is going to set in, even among the the young um, Robin Hood traders, like and they're going to start to take some profits. And when that happens, uh, the thing's going to unravel like they have in the past, and probably hurt a lot of the same investors. We'll let the lawyers deal with the legal issues, Jim. I do want to get your view on whether we're discussing this the right way. We often have this conversation; everyone is over the last week as them versus them, the institutions versus retail. Jim, don't you think that's kind of naive to believe that there are institutional traders on the Reddit boards doing exactly the same thing, squeezing out the big shorts? I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that is. It's probably happening more as, as the price of moves. I come back to, John, that whoever's doing it, I think this is market manipulation. I think it's a destabilizing force. And, you know, think about the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve in this country spent most of last year, a great bulk of the year, Re-establishing functionality and liquidity uh, and stabilization to the financial markets—that was a big part of what they did all year long. And now we're we're allowing something that's destabilizing the financial markets and setting up the situation to harm a number of of, of investors, whether they're big or small, uh, down the road. And I I think it's it's sort of hypocritical to do what we did last year to try to stabilize the financial markets to save the economy and assist it, and allowing this to go on. I well, 
guess that's where I'm at. I don't, Jim, <laughs> I don't, I'm still understanding a lot of this too. To play devil's advocate, people would say the Federal Reserve perhaps stabilized the market for the people in the market, which includes the big Wall Street players and the wealthiest individuals. And that seems to be the tone, the, the tone, the trope among a lot of these Robin Hood investors. I mean, what do you say to people who say that Wall Street has lost the moral high ground here based on the idea that there has been a, a sort of rejiggering in terms of the fundamentals and the price action based on what policy has done? Well, I, I'm not sure Wall Street's ever had the high moral ground, <laughs> you know, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I got to tell you, if, if we, uh, you go back to any crisis we've had, and if you don't reestablish uh, functioning Wall Street and stability, it's disastrous for the economy. And, and so, you know, the, the result of that is if you, if you don't do that, I think the Federal Reserve would say that too, Lisa, that if you, if you don't reestablish a functioning Wall Street, it'll be disastrous for the economy, which means it'll be disastrous for everyone. So when you save Wall Street, you save the economy. They're, they're not a, a, a separate deal. And I think that's important to, to understand. I think one great thing that's coming out of the, the Reddick situation here, which is a wonderful thing for the future, is that we're in, uh, enticing more and more young investors at a younger age, millennials, rather than waiting to 40 or 50 to start to learn to invest in the markets and getting involved in the marketplace. I think that's a huge success and will be b very beneficial down the road in terms of general wealth uh, creation in terms of greater li liquid markets uh, over time and greater participation by uh, more. But I'll tell you what, if we damage everybody uh, and while they're just starting to get involved with this, that'll set that trend back. Jim, it's great to catch up, sir. Jim Polston there. Too short. Of Luthold Weed and always too short with Jim. Jim, thank you, Thanks. sir. Thanks for having me. Right now, from the International Monetary Fund, it was my great honor to speak to the managing uh, director, Kristalina uh, Georgieva, a few days ago. She stops and she listens to Vitor Gaspar. He is the IMF Director of Fiscal Affairs, always an important position, and ever more so in the tumult of this pandemic. Vitor, uh, Carmen Reinhardt wrote a paper this summer, my paper of the summer, with a Foreign Affairs magazine on the pandemic depression. How is your fiscal world given the attempt to get through this pandemic right now? So a pandemic by nature, uh, Tom, is a health uh, crisis. At this point in time, the chief economist of the IMF has emphasized that we face a tremendous amount of uncertainty, that it is a race between a mutating virus and the vaccines. The uh, virus got a head start, and in the North Atlantic area, the cases have been uh, very strong in this period of uh, fall, uh, winter. It is crucial that the rollout of vaccines uh, takes place very quickly, and that's a global process. I like to say that uh, the virus is not defeated anywhere before it is defeated everywhere. And so uh, ensuring mm -hmm. uh, global access 
uh, to vaccines at low cost is crucial right. uh, to beat the pandemic. Dr. Gorgieva spoke of the new inequality from this natural disaster. Tell us what you and your team have learned about the new inequality and the distribution of stimulus. Are we, stim- are we providing fiscal stimulus to too many of the haves and not enough of the have-nots? There are two very important dimensions of that inequality that I would like to stress. One is uh, uh, divergences across countries in terms of economic prospects, in terms of supporting the economy. At one extreme, you have a country like the U.S. that has ample fiscal space that can uh, provide relief uh, to the economy, that has been providing relief and more is in the pipeline. And looking forward, the United States by 2022 will be very close to its uh, pre COVID-19 growth path, in particular, if uh, something like the uh, Biden uh, relief plan gets uh, through the political process in Congress. At the other extreme, we have uh, low-income countries that basically had to uh, tackle the emergency of COVID-19 by by changing the composition of uh, public spending so that urgent needs in health uh, could be tackled, support to business and firms could be given, but the financial envelope was constrained by the the financial capacity of the countries. We have also very important aspects of inequality across people, and you have uh, uh, divergences in terms of uh, education. People that have uh, more than a college degree have been much less affected than people that lack it. This uh, pandemic has uh, affected women and uh, young workers uh, much more than other segments. I worry very much about the uh, children from uh, least favored families who are uh, uh, suffering in their uh, education uh, prospects given the restrictions imposed by social distancing. Vitor, many people share those concerns. I just want to finish on one brief question, if I may. Do you think debt-to-GDP ratios are still useful? Uh, Debt-to-GDP ratios are useful. They're an indicator uh, that we do look at. It's one of the many indicators that one needs to follow. Uh, in order to assess uh, public finance sustainability. It's very important that fiscal policy is able to act uh, forcefully in case of need. And we have seen how powerful fiscal policy can be in the context of COVID-19. And in order to have room to maneuver uh, to respond so forcefully as has been the case uh, in 2020 in the face of COVID-19, fiscal buffers will eventually have to be reconstituted. But at this point in time, yeah. the priority is to uh, spend on vaccines, testing and healthcare, support resources to help schools and college to reopen uh, safely, helping uh, the poor and most uh, vulnerable uh, families help the uh, unemployment and uh, the unemployed and 
make sure that there are no bottlenecks on crucial services uh, that people need in these very uncertain times of pandemic. Vito, great to catch up. Your time's valuable. We appreciate it. Thank you for spending some of it on this program. Vito Gaspar there of the International Monetary Fund. Right now, not in a vaccine, but the mystery of what to do with the vaccine. In vaccinations, Hemi Torsen joins us from Duke Margolis at uh, Duke University. Uh, Hemi, I'm, I'm absolutely stunned, and I went through it myself. I had the vaccine of what a manufacturing process is. is. You are expert at the vaccine, the virus, at the state level. Why did West Virginia, why did the Dakotas succeed and others have struggled? Yeah, great to be here with you, Tom. So there's a lot of different reasons um, why you see a couple of states at the head of the list. And it's not predictable based on any common theme, you know, size, you know, um, political attributes, et cetera. So there's a couple of things I think that led to the early success for some states. And really, I will caveat, I think we're going to see a lot of moving around with the figures as things move along. Mm -hmm. Um, But some states were just faster um, out of the gate. Um, You know, in West Virginia, for example, they um, chose to do their own thing with long-term care pharmacies. So the long-term care facilities that, you know, most states partnered with CVS and Walgreens, um, and those pharmacies were responsible for getting the vaccine into the arms of, you know, residents and staff at long-term care facilities. In West Virginia, CVS and Walgreens does not have a big footprint. So they decided, you know, um, we know there's not a lot of staff at those pharmacies now, given how quickly we need to get the vaccines into the arms of people, we're gonna take control of that and we're gonna partner with our community pharmacies and community partners and get it done. And and they do credit yeah. that initial you know, quick quick speed to that. Yeah, That's go ahead. the smartest thing I've heard today, Hami. What's so important is Mariana Mazzucato was on three hours earlier with her great new book and she said exactly the same thing. There's a point where government has to step in. Is that what's needed in February? Is more government action? Well, I just also want to say there were some states where CVS and Walgreens had a great footprint and they were very effective in getting people vaccinated. Okay. Now with so there really is, this is, this is um, you know, I've done state work for a long time. There's variations across the states and it matters. You have to look at what that state, um, how it operates, you know, what its um, staffing looks like and how, you know, the people are, are going to be willing to get the vaccine. Now, on federal government stepping in, I think, you know, we do need some national leadership on this. And I think states will want national leadership on this. Funding is going to be really helpful. Thinking about a coordinated plan across the states. But I caveat that to say, um, also recognizing, and I know the Biden-Harris administration is, is very um, in tune with this, looking at what each state needs. Because in one state, you know, you're going to need some National Guard, um, you know, some federal sites to be set up in rural areas and really help the state supplement what they're already doing. While other states have enough vaccinators and they don't need that. They need other kinds of support. So, you know, it's really important to look at how each state is operating and what it really needs. Amy, you're talking about financing this effort, and that's one bipartisan agreement in Washington, D.C., that financing the vaccination schedule will be very good for the nation. Can you give us a sense, just to get uh, a greater appreciation of the complication of the rollout, where the money is most heavily needed going forward in order to uh, facilitate this? 
Yeah, so a number of states, in order to start speeding up the process, um, have started setting up mass vaccination sites, which requires a lot of different types of partnerships. So that's one area I think continued resources will be needed. I also think we can't forget about populations that are harder to reach and that are in like places like rural areas where mobile sites, um, you know, or community sites, which will be smaller, but still will need to be set up also need also will be needed. I also think, you know, this is a this is a complicated effort that's at the federal level, the state level and the local level and the local level really matters. So making sure states have funding to then partner with local entities, local government, community groups, et cetera, I think is also important because we have to get people to not only trust and believe in the vaccine, but also the process by which to get access to it. Meanwhile, uh, just today, hey man, I'd love to just wrap up with the news of the day, which is that J&J came out with yes. the data for the single dose vaccine. It was not as stunning as some of the other uh, yes. mRNA vaccinations, however, still very positive. How much does this accelerate the timeline for vaccinating? I think um, we are all hopeful across the country that there are going to be no, more options for vaccines. We have to get 300 million people vaccinated and we are not on pace for that. Um, and the states don't have the supply for that. So we absolutely need new candidates to come in the door. Um, I do think there are concerns um, in the public and it will, I think will continue to be more widespread about the, the strains in the UK and South Africa. I think we've seen initial evidence that for the South African strains, these vaccines are, are not quite as effective. I think more evidence is needed, um, but we still need um, more options for people to get vaccinated. Amy, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Amy Tarson uh, with Duke Margolis today, their Center for Health uh, Policy. The state issue here going forward is going to be extraordinary. We get lucky. It's okay three months out, six months out to book Mariana Mazzucato to beat up on her new book, Mission Economy. But it's far more important to speak with a UCL professor about the moment at hand as well, because the moment at hand is in the mission economy. It's about the new rules and the myths of capitalism. Professor Mazzucato, you were my book of the year a couple years ago. I haven't really looked at mission economy yet, but thrilled you've got a new book out. I want you to sit in London, wherever you are, and comment on how you observe GameStop. Comment on this clash of technology with a traditional process of capitalism. Well, I mean, you know, let's broaden the gaze a bit, right? We've got tech, we have the digital platforms that we're talking about, we have climate change, we have the health pandemic. What they all have in common is that we need to govern the process in the common interest. And what's, you know, the common theme in my different books, which you always get me on for, which is wonderful, is that unless we actually know how to shape markets as opposed to constantly just fix market failures, in any of the, these areas, we get it wrong. And I do think the COVID moment where we have the digital divide, where we have the health pandemic, where this particular crisis is sitting on top of a climate crisis, we just have to go back to first principles. And that's really what the book is about. What are the, I want to get to that in one moment. I want to talk about something in your book, serendipity and collaboration. We're seeing serendipity. We're seeing collaboration now by smart young people sitting on couches saying to hedge funds, forget about it. We make the rules. How collaborative is this new technology, whether it's a crisis like GameStop or it's to the broader world economy that you look at? Well, I mean, you know, 
when I say go back to first principles, we should also ask where does this technology even come from in the first place? And that was kind of two books ago in the entrepreneurial state where I talked about how everything that makes our iPhones smart and not stupid, from the internet, GPS, touchscreen, Siri, and I could go on, was all actually government financed, right? So, you know, what happens then when this technology and the algorithms underlying them are actually increasingly also about extracting value, not creating value, but even more so, what does it mean to truly have a public-private partnership, a symbiotic, mutualistic partnership, and not a parasitic partnership in these different spaces? And that's why the moon landing is so amazing. There is huge amounts of private sector innovation and investment from companies like Honeywell, General Electric, Motorola, of course, large state funding from NASA and other public entities. But they were going after common projects. So the real question is, what is the common project underlying you know, today's news? Yeah, so what is that common project, Mariana? I mean, we're fighting climate well, change. We're, there isn't you one. know, everything yeah. we're doing, right? But what should it be? Because everything we're doing is also under the president, you know, the presence of, of the capitalism that we know. Well, first of all, let's not forget there's different ways of doing capitalism. I gave a talk uh, this past Monday at the World Economic Forum where you and I last year were together physically in Switzerland. This year we're all zooming in. And, you know, all the talk, again, is about stakeholder capitalism. Now, if we properly had stakeholder capitalism and not just capitalism maximizing shareholder value and kind of gaming the system, then that would be a very different conversation, whether we're talking about digital platforms, health, or climate. So we need to remember, first of all, that there's different experiences in the world. Stakeholder capitalism is practiced, has been practiced in certain companies, in certain parts of the world. So we need to actually learn from those experiences and walk the talk. And there's no better place, I think, right now than the vaccine to talk <laughs> about that. Because it's not enough to have, you know, Pfizer, the National Institutes of Health, which is public money, Moderna, Oxford University, you know, investing in something. The question is, how do we then govern it? for purpose, and that's really what the Moonshot book is about, which is what is the common purpose? With the vaccine, it's not just to get a vaccine, it's to make sure everyone gets vaccinated, right? right? But Mariana, has, yeah. okay, but if you look at the commission, they can't even have access to the vaccines because you know they, they started too late. So where do you start in actually changing so that you create the system that you're seeing, which is you know, mission critical, you achieve the goal that you set out? Right. So, you know, I think we're, we're bringing in different issues here, which are all related, so it's a good thing. But one issue is also the capacity and the capability on the ground organizationally. And whether we're talking about the European Commission or the UK government, which is where I'm sitting here in the UK, which has outsourced its capability and its capacity so much to the private sector that um, a couple of weeks ago, a Tory lord, Agnew, said that the government had become infantilized. It's such an interesting word. I started to use that. Uh, you know, by outsourcing your brain, you get infantilized. You lose your capability and capacity to manage anything, whether it's Brexit or COVID. So instead of just kind of taking the status quo, so say the European Commission getting in there too late, the question is going forwards, how can we actually govern and shape and co-create <clears throat> markets in such a yeah. way to achieve the goals we need, which is inclusive growth, sustainable growth. And I do think at the center of the COVID recovery scheme, and you know, we all are talking about building back better, has to be green growth. And this is where the European Commission has gotten it right, more so, I think, than the U.S., even more so than China, which is the current European right. recovery scheme, which is close to a trillion, is conditional, no longer on austerity, which is the conditions that we set in the financial crisis for the recovery scheme, but on investment, investment around digital and climate. And then there's a separate pot for health. Mariana, you have a phrase, 
that is absolutely spectacular. And folks, if I was sitting in Happy Valley right now on the deck with Francine, this would be my title for this year's Davos. It is a shaping, not fixing Davos. Mariana, that is absolutely brilliant. This describes so much of what I, and you know, Mariana, I hate the phrase thought leaders and all that other malarkey. This is so, <laughs> so, so true. They're trying to shape the message and not fix it. Discuss that. Well, in some ways, I guess I'm, so I'm not sure what you just said, but what I usually say is that we should stop just fixing market failures, you know, actually waiting for the, mar the, the market to mess up before policy comes in, we need a different type of policy and we need a different type of public-private partnership that co-creates and shapes markets to deliver the outcomes we actually need. And that requires fundamentally a different partnership, literally a new contract. And I do, you know, I'm not a big fan of getting lawyers involved, but I really want to start right. looking at contracts, <clears throat> the procurement contracts, the grants and the loans. If we could embed within them a common purpose like okay. the moment we had because that was embedded within the structure of how NASA collaborated with the different companies. We would have a very different outcome today in health and also around, right. um, yeah, sorry. Mariota, take it narrow. Should Gary Gensler with the Biden administration be more proactive about fixing, not shaping Wall Street given the crisis it's in this Friday morning? Well, I mean, the big, you know, the big issue there is what is the relationship between finance and the real economy? You know, most of the of, of global finance actually ends up back in the financial sector. In the UK, something like only 20 percent of finance even goes into the real economy. Now, once it goes into the real economy, how can we make sure it actually helps to steer our system in fundamentally different ways. Everyone talks about the green transition. Biden's talking again about the Green Deal. But finance has to be part of that solution. And unfortunately, we have a lots of short-term mm -hmm. finance. We have speculative finance. Even venture capital, which in theory is like right. the, the better form of finance, <clears throat> is very exit-driven. Right. That actually ended up really hurting well. the biotechnology industry, which ended up with lots of productless IPOs. We have to avoid that currently with all the uh, you know, innovation happening again in space with right. Elon Musk. In clean tech, we cannot have exit-driven finance, just trying to get a return and really creating a mess okay. uh, that we have to then pick up. It is a wonderful book on the mission economy where Mariana Mazzucato uh, straps the great triumph of the Apollo program over to the challenges of capitalism uh, moving uh, forward. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.